Are you or a loved one stuck or frozen in addiction recovery? Are you inspired to drop old and limiting beliefs about who you really are? Process your emotions, disarm the inner critic, and move from self-loathing to self-embracing with Melissa Armstrong Coaching. With online one-on-one coaching, small group coaching, and workshops, Melissa Armstrong can help you find the magic in the darkness. Check out Melissa Armstrong at www.strongarm.ca. That's www.strongarm.ca. It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. Anybody else miss that wildly over-the-top dramatic intro? No, just me. So yeah, it's it's been a while, obviously, since our last episode. And I, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge my absence. Life has a way of testing our resilience. And I needed to take some time for self-care and reflection. As you know, this podcast has always been a platform for open and honest discussions about addiction and recovery. But sometimes... The journey of hosting a podcast about addiction while also managing one's own recovery can be quite challenging, but I'm extremely grateful to be back with Caller 38 and their story about addiction. Wait, that's not right. I mean, Caller 39. Yeah, 39. Addicts in the dark. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly, caller 39, not 38. Inside joke. Anyways, uh, so you okay. know how this goes. No names, no exact locations. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you've got a maximum of an hour. Yep. All right, let's talk about your addiction. Okay. Um, well, I didn't get clean until uh, 2015. I was 39 years old, and I had been struggling for about better part of 15 years with narcotic addiction. Before that, it was drinking all the way back down until I was 15. And I just, I always needed something to get numb. And I didn't like the way alcohol really made me feel because it was bloating and it, was, it just felt like a slop. But when I found narcotics, I was like, oh, this is great. I have energy. I can do anything. Uh, not realizing that I was nodding out all the time. And my, my story is probably a lot more common nowadays than it used to be because I started with prescription medications that were legally prescribed by my doctor for medicinal purposes because of my chronic TMJ, um, my TMJ disorder, my failed surgeries, my failed back surgeries. You know, I justified that I was going to be able to be an addict the rest of my life. And over the time, it just got worse and worse and worse. And your whole life revolves around getting the drugs. Um, when I would get drugs and I would get high, I was already thinking, how am I going to get the next ones, even if I had a good supply? And it handicapped me for a long time. It ruined relationships, my relationship with my late husband. Um, we had been together since 2000, and I wasn't an addict when he met me. 
but I became an addict shortly after that. And our relationship went downhill. And I, it's only going back and piecing things together is that my addiction cost me my relationship with him because I became a person he didn't know. Uh, we were still getting to, to know each other, you know, in the early stages of our relationship. But he saw something in me, you know, so he put up with my crap. And um, he had mentioned so many times, do you think you have a problem? Maybe you have a problem. Never accusing me, but just, you know, kind of saying, do you think you have a problem? And it wasn't until in 2015, he finally got tired and he said, you know what? I don't need you anymore. I can raise the kids by myself. You do 1% of what I ask you to do. And even that you can't do. You fight with everybody. You're miserable all the time. You make the kids scared. And I just don't need you anymore. And I never thought I would get to that point that I wouldn't be needed by anybody. I thought me being me was just good enough that people were going to love me regardless of if I was taking a drink or a drug or smoking something or whatever. I thought I was good enough. You know, a crappy version of me is good enough for the world. Yeah, it's almost like life has a way of showing us the real price of our addictions when we lose something that is really precious to us. It's in those moments of loss that we're forced to confront the true toll of our habits and how they've taken over our lives and the lives of those around us as well. Yes. And one, one of the things that sticks out in, in my, one of the earlier times that I had tried to stop using, I didn't think I had a problem. Okay. But I wanted to stop using. And I threw my pills out the window while I was driving in the car. I said, I don't need this shit anymore. And about 12 hours later, I was in severe withdrawal, not knowing that that's what it was. And I spent a while um, on the floor of my apartment for the next you know, few days. You know, I, oh, I've got the flu. I've got the flu. Not knowing. And I had the news on and I'm laying there on the floor and there's the news is talking about I'm cracking down on pill mills. Um, it was the Oxycontin, you know, pharmacies that were writing stuff for, for anybody. And uh, they were calling it hillbilly heroin. And I think this was 2000. It was about 2005. And I'd never heard this stuff. And keep in mind, I'm on the floor withdrawing from the same stuff. And they're like, oh, it's highly addictive. And it's all this other stuff. I'm like, oh, my God, why didn't someone tell me this? My doctors said it was fine. And at that point in America, at least, it wasn't as prevalent to know that people are going to be as addicted to these opioids the way they ended up being, you know, for how crippling it became. And it was very painful looking back to say, I missed out on so much, all because of this. You know, it robbed me of so much of my life. And what happened to my breaking point is I said, if I ever get to the point where I try heroin, that'll be the point that I stop. And I texted someone one day because my doctors finally cut me off. I had nowhere else to go. I had been running on fumes for about six months. And I texted someone, an acquaintance who I knew that was a dealer. He just sold weed, but it was like, how fast can I get some heroin? And as soon as I hit send, I was like, that's the line I said I'd never cross. That's the line right there. And I don't remember anything after that until my husband came home later that night and I said, I need help. 
you need to take me somewhere. I need to be like locked up. I need to be put away. I can't do this. I was going to try to do it on my own. And thank God I didn't because the withdrawal, the, um, you know, my brother-in-law went through withdrawal and almost died having a seizure because he didn't want to tell anybody what was going on with his addiction. So I know what very well could have happened. And my husband said, okay. And he called off work and he said, okay, I made my calls. You make yours. And I called the hospital and found a detox that would take me as soon as possible because I just, I couldn't live anymore. I couldn't deal with the pain anymore. And it was the pain of the withdrawal, the pain of being around family that doesn't want me around and being to the point that you don't want to look in the mirror at yourself. You know, I feel like for, for so many people in active addiction, they eventually hit a point where they realize that trying to recover without any help isn't actually a sign of strength. It's a refusal to seek the necessary supports to get better. And it sounds like you reached those depths of despair, which in turn allowed you to reach out for help. There, there's no question that was a blessing because there's no way I was thinking clear-headed enough to say, okay, as a rational, sober person, here's a good decision. It was, I was fucked up. I had been in active addiction for quite a while, enabled by doctors who weren't necessarily enabling. They were doing their job back then. Yeah, I don't think we can ever point the finger or only point the finger at doctors when it comes to opioid addiction. There are so many factors, mental health, socioeconomic disparities, and yes, at times, questionable healthcare practices, but pain management, to your point, that's that's what doctors do, yeah. doing their job. And, you know, the opioid crisis hadn't really hit when I started. If your doctor gave them to you, you, you weren't like, yay. It was like, okay, he said I can take these for pain. Oh, they help. Great. Nobody was suspicious that there's a problem. And it wasn't until midway through my addiction and towards the end of it is when the DEA started really cracking down and it made it a hell of a lot harder. And I remember asking, you know, the same friend I asked about the heroin, I asked him how hard it would be to get some Vicodin or how much it would be to get some Vicodin. He's like, oh, it'd be 80. Like, huh? And he's like, it's 80 a pill. I'm like, are you out of your mind? To me, that's also bad drug policy. The DEA cracking down on the circulation of prescription drugs clearly doesn't help anyone's addiction problem. Yes. It just fuels the street drug trade. And it was too easy for me to run and to, I'm going to say to blame other people. I can blame the doctor. You wrote me these scripts. I'm also going to point out that it was a doctor who saved my life because he cut me off. He sent me a letter from his practice and I didn't understand what it meant. But basically, in using fancy terms, it says you're, you're engaging in drug-seeking behavior, and we cannot continue to treat you. We're not going to enable you, but we can't continue to treat you. So this is our formal you know, end of our, our business relationship. And years later, I went back to that doctor, and I thanked him. Because if he didn't do that for me, I don't think another doctor would have. And uh, I told him in front of my son, I said, my son here has never seen me in using drugs. And that's because you did the right thing by cutting me off. And I'm, I'm grateful I was able to say that. I'm so grateful because I lost a cousin to addiction. 
so many people I know, people in recovery have died from relapse because the drugs are not the same as what we think they are. We think the drugs are the same and they're not. Even when the drugs are the same, people in relapse are at a higher risk of overdose simply because of tolerance. Yeah. They try a little bit of what they used to do and they're dead. Because in active addiction, I didn't care what it was. If it, if it had a warning label on it, I'll take it. I'll give it a shot. If there was someone who said, hey, I can get you a handful of these pills, sure, I'll take them. It's going to be cheaper than the, the doctor or the doctor won't write them for me. So yeah, I'll go to you. Right. So take us back to when your husband told you to make your calls and that he would make his. Yeah, it was, it was really bad because he had a very big week at work. He was a music teacher. He was supposed to take kids down to perform at a Philadelphia 76ers game at halftime. And it was a big deal for these kids. They'd never gone anything like that. And because of this, he had to call them, cancel the trip. I, I've never let that one slide. It was the most loving thing that anybody has ever done for me. And it's, uh, I, I acknowledge that whenever I talk about my addiction, because I didn't do stuff on my own. I didn't quit on my own. I didn't quit on my own accord. I had someone who gave me, fortunately, enough reason that I said, I want to get help. Not I'm going to get clean for him. You know, because there's a difference. But the first time that I tried to stop using, I was like, okay, I just want to preserve our relationship, so I'm going to quit. Not realizing I have an addiction. I have a serious problem. This isn't a matter of, oh, just stop doing it. It is a physical and psychological dependence that I did not understand had me, you know, it had me. Better part of 2001 till 2015. There was only one period of time that I was not using for more than a few months. And that was that time where I just didn't try to quit. I was just trying to preserve my relationship. I think oftentimes when our loved ones give us ultimatums, it's a way of them preventing themselves from continuing to enable the situation. And that's obviously challenging for them too. Yeah. You, you touched on something there. I can't imagine how hard it was for him because almost three months ago, I had to tell my 17 year old, he couldn't live with us anymore, live in my house anymore because he kept getting high and lying about it and lying about it and not seeming to understand that I'm an addict. And that the temptation of any kind of drug, like I don't keep alcohol in the house. I just don't. But it was the most painful thing that I had to put the person I love the most out of my life because I didn't want to sit back and enable him until he was 37, 38, 39 like me and find him dead on the floor or hope that will go to rehab. And I feel so much pain for the parents that have to go through this because I'm on both sides of it now. I was in it as an addict, I'm in it as a parent or someone who's watching a loved one and, and you're looking at this slow motion accident happen. I'm, I'm sitting in my son's room right now while we're doing this and looking around the room, I'm like, it's, it's very painful to be here, but it's also kind of fitting. And it took me up until literally yesterday at almost 48 years old to realize that I've been lying to myself all along because I needed to get numb because I was pissed about something that happened when I was a kid. 
because I didn't know how to talk about it. I was mad that nobody was protecting me. Nobody protected me from other things. Nobody told me, don't do drugs. Nobody told me, don't inappropriately touch family members or let them touch you. These kinds of things that you keep in, those are the kinds of things that eat up an addict inside. It's those secrets that will kill us. It was such a painful thing yesterday to realize that nobody tried to protect me from drugs. Nobody tried to protect me from the family members that were abusive. Nobody tried to stop the drinking. And even when they knew the stuff was going on, when they knew it was going on, they didn't try to stop. They didn't try to help. They just looked away. My parents are from a generation that people didn't get mental health. There was, you didn't, God forbid if you said you were depressed, you'd be locked up. You'd be shunned. My parents' generation drank their problems away. We didn't talk about them. We drank them away. But I also wish that my parents had, had stepped up and said, hey, you know what? You're, you can't have any more of my painkillers. I need them. You don't need them. You know, you can't do this stuff in my house because you're a fucking mess. You're upsetting everybody because you're so high all the time. Yeah, but don't you think as an addict, those barriers that you wish your parents had put up, don't you think that you would have just circumvented them? I think I would have. Yeah, I would have circumvented them, definitely. And, you know, when I got clean and the first couple times I would go back to my parents' house, my mother said, you know, she can't walk very well. She's like, can, can you go to my room and get me one of my, my pills? I'm like, and I just like started sweating. I said, no, I can't. You have to have someone else go get it. Because I knew I could easily just say, I can rationalize this so bad. I can lie about anything. And I can make my life go around it where, you know, yeah, I'm in recovery, but I'm still using her drug because I had to go get her something. You know, I can, I can navigate that minefield and rationalize it. But eventually, that wears off. The reality sets in, and you're still dope sick. You feel like you feel like hell mentally and spiritually. You feel like, what did I just do? It is the kind of behavior that you, you know it's not in your control. When you're doing stuff, it's like, if you can look back and say, what the hell was I doing? I'm on my knees in the middle of an intersection trying to scrape up my pills, that, my jar of pills that got ran over by a car and is disintegrated and it's in, mixed in with a bunch of gravel. This is true. I did this. I went back to my house with a dustpan and a broom and came back there and I'm sweeping it up and it's half Vicodin, a lot of it too, like 180 pills in that bottle. And it was mixed in with gravel in the road. And I scooped it all up and said, you know, I'm not going to waste that. I would just take handfuls of it or a pinch of it. And okay, I eat some rocks. So what? I'm at least getting, I'm getting high from it. And that's not even the lowest thing people do. You know, that's just one of the low points of my life because it was broad daylight in the middle of an intersection doing that. But, but what do you do at any other point in time when you are shaking so bad that you don't care where you're going, what you're doing, who you're doing it with, just as long as you can get the next one. And that's uncontrolled. You know, I can't, if I can't control, if I can't stop something, can't put it down, can't walk away from it, then I got a problem with it. I have the same issue with, with uh, junk food, with chocolate. I cannot have chocolate for a whole year 
if I have one M&M, the next thing you know, I want a whole pound bag of M&Ms. And then I want it every night for the next six months. And then I put on 50 pounds. And guess what? That's what I did. It is my behavior that of an addict. Not just because of the specific substance. It's the behavior that I exhibit because I don't know how to moderate anything behaviors but i'd also say thoughts behaviors shape addiction but the power of thought uncomfortable intrusive thoughts those prolong addiction and can make recovery even tougher oh yes it is the thoughts it is i know i have always been my worst and my own worst enemy because i criticize the things about myself that nobody has ever criticized and i will obsess on it and dwell on it And then it gets to be so painful that you're looking for any kind of escape. And then you okay, I'm going to gravitate towards this today. Well, that made me feel better. So I'll keep doing that. I'm going to do it obsessively. But it's just so it is a distraction from the thoughts that I have about my inadequacies of life. I'm trying to forget that pain of not being, quote unquote, normal or good enough for me. That's what it is. Wanting to be accepted, not wanting to be different, but at the same time, wanting to be special, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's ego. It drives denial. It allows us to rationalize our use. And at the same time, it makes us protect our self-image, despite the destructive nature of our addiction. When I'm in certain meetings, every relapse story I've ever heard was someone got comfortable with thinking, okay, I can, I can manage this. I can do these things on my own. I can just get away from doing the things that got me clean to begin with. And I'm not talking one program over another. I'm just talking about the, set, the sense of being true to yourself, being honest. If I ever hear in my head myself say, I got this, I can handle this. I'm scared to death. I'm running for support somewhere. Because to me, that's my disease saying, you are good enough to do anything on your own. You don't need anybody. And like you said, it's it's the ego. Yeah, it's kind of like ego can trick you into believing that you've beaten addiction. But really, it's a constant effort. Correct. I mean, I'm not saying correct. It's like I know better. I'm saying I agree. Because... This is anything in life, and this goes back to my late husband. Nobody is perfect. He used to tell me all the time, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Nobody is. All we can do is try to be better than we were. If we we do something wrong, we try to be better the next time. And that's something I try to teach to our kids is that it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to falter. Nobody is perfect. And anybody who thinks that perfection is attainable they're, that's their ego trying to say, yeah, I'm better than you because I'm perfect. You know, I've heard a lot of times we're perfectly imperfect. Well, damn right we are because we're human. And I want to be able to help people who have, a trou- have trouble saying, I need help. Because I think there's no addict that has never not felt that, that despair and the pain. And it's like, just, you don't want to see anybody go through that. And you certainly don't want to go through it yourself again. And it helps me, it reminds me of, I am still not perfect, nor will I ever be. But if I help someone feel like it's okay to not be okay, then then I'm doing something right. 
I'm doing something helpful because people don't feel alone and don't feel like they have to do this stuff on their own. That they don't have to try to recover on their own. Well, I can tell you that sharing your story today will certainly serve as a powerful catalyst in helping others struggling from addiction. I appreciate it. It was completely my honor. Consider this. Addiction can make your loved ones believe that you're only as good as your substance dependency allows. This caller's experience highlights the painful reality that loved ones may distance themselves in an effort to protect themselves from the chaos that addiction can bring. But here's the crucial message. Your value as a human being goes beyond the grip of your addiction. Recovery is a testament to your strength and resilience, a journey marked by both setbacks and moments of growth. It demands courage, self-reflection, and support from those who understand. By seeking help, sharing your struggles, and embracing the support of those who empathize with your journey, you're not just breaking free from the chains of addiction, you're rewriting the narrative of your life. Till next time, I'm Quick Nick. Thanks for listening. Addicts in the Dark is brought to you in part by Melissa Armstrong Coaching. Check out Melissa Armstrong at www.strongarm.ca. That's www.strongarm.ca.